0: Let's now read Hebrews 10:19 to 25. Hebrews 10:19 The great priest of the new living way. Hebrews 10:19 Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you because of Christ. We know that his flesh is the way of heaven because of his death on our behalf. He has entered into heaven. We put confidence in no one else but in him. Now be with us as we understand this and understand its implications for our life. Lord, work in us and may we not only be hearers of the word but doers of the word. May we not just hear but may we believe and obey everything. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this part of Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25 he presents to us an exhortation. So far... From chapter 7, chapter 7 to chapter 10, verse 18, he has explained again and again the fact that Jesus needed to come and what he accomplished when he came into the world. When he came into the world, what he accomplished by dying on the cross for our sins. All of this was predicted in the Old Testament and now fulfilled with the coming of Christ. That was Hebrews chapter 10, uh, chapter 7 through chapter 10, verse 18. Now he will continue with exhortations or encouragements and admonishments. He will continue now to encourage us to understand these implications of what Jesus has done and then he will warn us. He'll both encourage us and warn us alternately from now until the end of the chapter. In our place he has an encouragement. Then right after this is a very famous warning in verses 26 and following, and he will continue with an encouragement and warning in chapter 10 at the end of the chapter. Then we have chapter 11 with the long encouragement of the people of faith of old who made it, who endured, who went through many trials and afflictions, yet they maintained their faith till the end. So this is the kind of pattern he will now follow until the rest of the letter, till the end of the letter. So now, in our passage, 19 to 25, he tells us what Jesus has accomplished in a nutshell with two statements from verses 19 to 21. Then he has three encouragements or exhortations in 22 to 25. Verse 19 to 21, he says, "'Since therefore, brethren, "'we have confidence to enter the holy place "'by the blood of Jesus,' by a new and living way through which, uh, the living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. We see here, he says, since and since. Since the one is true and since the other is true. Therefore, we ought to live a certain way. And what are these truths that he establishes? What are the two since clauses He says, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he inaugurated through the veil that is his flesh. What does he mean? The first since is verses 19 and 20. He says that because Jesus has shed his blood, and with that blood, his flesh, his body, is the literal meaning or the literal implication of the Old Testament veil. Since Jesus died on the cross and by his body he has offered himself for us, he has made the possibility of us or the the certainty of us entering into heaven. He has actually caused that or made that happen. Meaning, remember in verse 8 when it says, he inaugurated for us, the veil that is his flesh. In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, there were curtains and there were veils. Curtains or veils. The veil was right there between the most holy place and the holy place. The most holy place was not a place where everyone could enter on a whim. Everyone could not go there whenever he felt like it. Only the high priest could go into that most holy place that inner sanctuary, that room, only the high priest could go after he was qualified to go there. The rest of the priests, the Levites, they could not go there, and the common people could not go there. Only the high priest, whenever he met the specific, detailed qualifications God ordained for him. And what was that veil representing? That actual veil or curtain right there, dividing those two locations inside the temple, it was there as a symbol of the body of Christ, or the flesh of Christ, as he calls it here, verse 20. His flesh. So that symbolism that no one can enter that most holy place unless he is imminently qualified with great specificity, only then can he enter there. The high priest would do that. But what did it represent? It represented the fact that Christ would come one day, he would be, the perfection of everything, he would be a perfect sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice, because Jesus would commit no sin, nor would any deceit be found in his mouth. Isaiah 53 says that, fifty three nine. He would, would commit no sin, no violence, no wrongdoing whatsoever, so his blood would be perfect blood. His flesh would be perfect flesh, and with that he entered into heaven. He inaugurated the way. He is our forerunner. He's the one that goes ahead of us and says, if you believe in me, you will follow in my path. You will follow in my trail. He has established that. He's made it possible. We know he made it possible because there were eyewitnesses who saw his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. These things did not happen in a dark and mysterious and devious corner. It did not happen in a dark and devious corner. It happened in broad daylight. There were witnesses who saw this very thing happen. He ascended into heaven. All that he did, his life, his ministry, everything he did, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, they all saw it. And so he says, we know that this has been accomplished, and this is the new and living way. He inaugurated for us the new and living way. The old way are the old ways of sin. The old ways are the dead ways of sin. The old and the dead ways of sin will not grant us entrance into heaven. When we love our sin, when we cling on to our sin, when we will not believe in the death of Christ, when we will not repent of our sins and turn to righteousness, if we will not do this, then that is the old way and that's the dead way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. This is the way we were of the past. Our old man, the old creation, has, if we are converted, needs to be set aside. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. When the Bible speaks of new and living way, it's speaking of the redemptive way, the redeemed way, the way of salvation. Jesus is the one who accomplished this for us. And because we believe in him, not ourselves, not in others, not in the things we do, not in our good works, but we trust in him, we have this new and living way. We have salvation. And because of this, what can we do? In verse 19, what can we do? We have confidence. As brothers in Christ, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, we have confidence to enter into heaven. We have confidence not only to enter into heaven, but as he will say in verses 22 and following, to approach Christ, to approach his throne, to pray to him, to plead with him, ask him, beg him for answers to prayer, for him to be with us, to guide us and lead us in our Christian life. We have confidence. We did not have that confidence before. We had our doubts. We wondered, will God really answer my prayers? Is God really listening? What about the way I am right now? Because of my sin, why would God want to answer me? We had those kinds of doubts and we would not have confidence to enter. But because we know we are new creations in Christ Jesus, all things passed away, behold, new things have come. We, are, have, we have this confidence, because now we belong to him. We are part of his family. That's why he calls us brothers right here. says, therefore, brethren. And who is our, our perfect brother? Who is our perfect brother? It is Christ, because he says in Hebrews 2.12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus considers us brothers. He's the perfect brother, so we must align ourselves with him. We must consider ourselves a part of that same family. He, in grace, he, in his mercy, has brought us into this family. He's brought us into this family. He's made us a part of the heavenly family. We can call God our Father because he has adopted us into his family. So now we have confidence to enter. We have confidence to depend on Him. We have confidence to trust Him. We have confidence that He will take care of us. He will take care of our souls. Everything that happens in this life is not to bring us into anxiety, not to bring us into confusion, not to bring us into doubt, not to bring us into death and misery. Nothing like that should happen because we believe in Christ. Therefore, we have confidence in whatever God says to approach God And eventually, ultimately, to approach him in heaven. All because of Christ. There. He accomplished that for us. What else did he do? Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. We have a great priest over the house of God. He's not just any priest. He's not like the the men of the family of Aaron. He's not like the men of the family of the Levites. He's not like one of us. He is greater than all of us. He's perfect. He's holy. He's pure. He's undefiled. There's no blemish in him. There's no sin. He understands. He is the perfect mediator. This is how great he is. This is how supreme he is. He is a priest or mediator between us and God. This is who we have. And if we have him, we need no other. He is over all of us. If we we have him, we need no other. That means we don't need, and we should not look to anyone else. We should not look to any other man. We should not look to any other religion. We should not look to any other founder or so-called prophet of another religion. No, only Christ. Only Christ. Furthermore, we should not even be looking to other gods, Other uh, angels, saints, dead saints, we should not be praying to them, we should not be looking to them, nothing whatsoever, because we have this great priest over the house of God. He's already anticipated this. He established it early in the letter in chapter 4, verse 14, verse 14, chapter 4, 14, What he said earlier, he is now repeating here because he has explained so much to prove what he said earlier. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin." Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. This great high priest passed through the heavens. That's his ascension. Jesus, the Son of God. Not just anyone. It's Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence so that God may help us because God in Christ does understand. God in Christ is merciful and gracious. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about our great high priest, verse 21. He's over us. And if we have him over us, we need no one else. Now, with that established, that he has, by his ministry, by his ministry, his blood, accomplished our redemption, and by his person, who he is, our great priest, or our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, because we have him, his person, his identity, both his ministry and his identity, who he is and what he did for us, we have this. We don't deserve it, but we have it. He's given this to us. Then what should we do with these truths? What should we do with this knowledge that we have Christ and we have Christ's work on our behalf? Does it mean now that we just twiddle our thumbs? Does it mean that we consume our times with other things? Does it mean that we don't need to grow in our faith anymore? Does it mean that we don't need to talk about God or think about God anymore or rarely? No. What does it mean? Verses 22 to 25 explain. These verses give us three exhortations. Three exhortations. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider. Let us is an exhortation. It's kind of saying, come on, let's go do this together. This is what we need to do. What do we need to do? Verse 22, the first one. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Why should we draw near like that? First he uh, will say, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What does he mean by that? He's saying, we ought to draw near, the way he says, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean From an evil conscience, firstly. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Our hearts used to have an evil conscience. We used to be guilty. We used to be depressed. We used to be anxious because of our sin. There was no resolution to our sin. But he says here, now our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our conscience was guilty. Our conscience was evil. It was unclean, but God sprinkled it clean. The sprinkling of water and of blood in the Old Testament is or was a symbolism of the fact that our hearts, our inner man, our souls needed to be sprinkled clean, needed to be cleansed by Christ. And now that we have that, we now have that. Now we don't have condemnation. Now we are in Christ. There, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ Jesus. We also know from 1 John 3, 321, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. We have confidence before God because our heart doesn't condemn us. Our heart doesn't condemn us because we've been cleansed, we've been freed from this evil conscience by the sprinkling of of the blood of Christ. His blood has been applied to our life. Further, our bodies washed with pure water. Here is a symbolism of immersion or baptism, a symbolism in the Old Testament for certain rites and rituals of the Levitical priesthood, they had to immerse themselves in water. They had to submerge themselves in water in order for them to carry out their duties. For certain rules and regulations and rights. They needed to do that. Well, what did that symbolize? That symbolized the cleansing of their soul completely. He says, This is what it is. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. That has all gone away. Remember again, 2 Corinthians 5:17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. The old is gone. It's forgiven. It's been completely washed away with pure water, the water of the ministry of Christ. Christ has purified us. He has cleansed us and gotten rid of everything. Now, if he's done that, if we now have been completely cleansed and purified, our souls now belong to God. Our heart has been changed what should we do? Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. When we draw near to God, and drawing near is in any and every way in the Christian life. He does not mean merely when we pray. It is important when we pray. But whenever we do anything in our life to draw closer to God, he says we must do it with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Even if your faith is like a mustard seed, have faith, have full assurance of faith whenever we act according to the will of God. Whether we pray, whether we speak, whether we do some action or good deed for somebody else, do it in full assurance of faith, with a sincere heart, not in pretension, not in hypocrisy, not in a wrong spirit with a wrong motive, But with a sincere heart, with a genuine heart, with that kind of heart and full faith, carry out your Christian life. We can do that with confidence because we know the will of God. He has opened our eyes to understand what He wants in our life. And if He's done that, then do it with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23 and what is faith? Hebrews 11:1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. And verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Faith, full assurance of faith, has to do with unseen things. We have faith in God. We have faith in God even though we don't see God. And we have faith in what He tells us, what He promises us, what He assures us of in our life. We have faith that that will happen even though we don't see it. That's what faith entails. And if we don't have this kind of faith, it's impossible to believe in God or to please God. It's impossible because we have to know that he will answer our prayers, he will provide for our needs, he will be there for us, even though we don't see it yet. He will. That's the kind of faith we should have when we draw near. Draw near to God in whatever, whether it's in your actions, it's your words, it's your thoughts, it's your values, it's your prayers. Whatever it is in your Christian life, draw near this way. Next, he says in 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The, the exhortation to hold fast, we ought to grasp or cling on to with both, both hands with full strength. Hold on to God, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Why should we cling on to what we have confessed? Why should we cling on to it without letting go, without releasing it, without turning back, without turning back like Lot's wife, who became a pillar of salt in Genesis 19, 26. She turned back and became a pillar of salt. She was longing to go back to the city of Sodom where she lived, and she wasn't following her husband straight ahead to flee Sodom before the city was destroyed. Lot continued. He did not look back, but she looked back. This is what he means. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We have confessed faith in Christ. We have confessed that. If we confessed it, if we said it with our mouth, then we ought to mean it. We cannot pretend. When we confess something to be true, we must say it with sincerity, in truth, without any mixture of hypocrisy. This is the way we ought to confess the faith. And this faith that we've confessed, a faith in Christ, was not something that was intended to bring us misery and doubt. It was not meant to spoil us, spoil our mood. Look at verse 23. He calls it the confession of our hope. The confession of our hope. The thing we're hoping for is eternal life. The thing that we're hoping for is to see Christ face to face. What we're hoping for is that all evil will pass away. What we're hoping for is to be with our Lord and Savior forever and ever. We're hoping for these kinds of things, are we not? So why would we throw that away? Why would we waver in that? Why would we be like a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, James 1.8? Why would we be like that? Why would we uh, be waffling and alternating between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. Why are we like this? He says, don't waver because we have an eternal hope. We have a wonderful hope. So stand firm, be strong, don't waver. Know what you have confessed and it is a good confession. Hold on to it without any wavering. And why? Why should we do this? For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. What God said will happen, will happen. We know many examples in the Bible, throughout the Bible. That's why the Old Testament is there. One of the reasons why it's there. The Old Testament is there from Genesis to Malachi because it has many, many examples of God saying He will do something and then it was fulfilled. Many predictions. Whether for the next day, the next hour, or even for 10 years in advance, or 100 years, or hundreds of years in advance, even thousands of years in advance, what God said will happen actually did happen. So if God is a faithful God who fulfills His promises, He announces a word, and that word will happen, that's the kind of God we believe in. We don't believe in a capricious God We don't believe in an arbitrary God. We don't believe in a God who does not know the future. We do not not believe in a God who does not control the future, for he knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46.10. He knows the end from the beginning. And Romans 8.28. God is the one who causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He not only knows the future, he controls the future. Romans 8, 28, he causes all things to work together for our good. He is faithful. So if he says it will be a certain way, then believe his promise. Just believe whatever he said. Just believe him. Don't trust the world, the flesh, and the devil. Believe him because he is faithful. He will not lie to us. He is not a liar. We are liars, but he is not a liar. God is not a man that he should repent, nor a son of man that he should lie. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? The false prophet, by the Spirit of God, Balaam, said those words. Numbers 23, 19. The false prophet who was forced by the Spirit of God to pronounce the word of God, he's the one that said those words. Why not believe those words? Because they were from the Spirit of God. God is faithful. So don't trust yourself and anyone else. Trust His promises. And finally, the final exhortation. And it also is accompanied by a warning in verse 25. He says in 24, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is also an active part of the Christian life. We're supposed to draw near, we're supposed to hold fast, and now this other action, very active action, is let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This shows us we're not to be passive. This shows us we're not to be relaxed in what we are thinking and doing on behalf of one another. We have to be thinking, how can I help my brother in Christ? How can I help this other believer in Christ in the church? How can I stimulate the other to love and good deeds? How can I teach another brother or sister in Christ? How can I teach them to love God and to love their neighbor? How can I teach them to do what is good? How can I do that? Have we considered that? When we come to worship, do we come to worship or when we come to study the Bible, when we come for those things, are we thinking only about ourselves or are we thinking, okay, now that I learned this, I need to apply it, obey it myself, and then I need to teach somebody else. I need to show somebody else. Isn't that the way we're supposed to be? He says we're supposed to love to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Love God better, love our neighbor as ourself better with this and the good deeds. We cannot just pretend. We cannot just say that we love one another or that we are coming for the right reasons when we're not coming. He says in 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Should we not teach each other how to avoid loving with word and tongue, but rather in deed and truth. That's what he teaches us in verse 24, to love one another, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Good deeds are a manifestation that we are redeemed. Good deeds follow our redemption. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Titus 2, 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and might purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." The grace of God that appeared for our salvation was not an impotent, powerless, weak, feeble grace, but it was a grace that brought salvation, and it's a grace that instructed us. God's grace actually taught us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age until the return of Christ. And why did Christ come and die on the cross for us? It says in 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is characteristic of a believer, not living for himself, but living for others, stimulating one another to love and good deeds. Now, how can this happen if we never see each other. How can this happen if we don't talk to each other and see each other face to face? Because he says in verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. You know, in times past, if you were to to consider the way that people attend church. They would attend church very regularly. They would attend Sunday morning every week, Sunday night every week, Wednesday night every week, and any other day of the week, whenever there were activities at the church, they would be there all the time, all the time. And in certain denominations, they keep the building open all the time and they have worship every day of the week. Whether it's early in the morning, five or 6 a.m. in the morning, or whether it's in the middle of the day, they have services every day of the week. Those denominations, for one reason or another, have maintained and retained that idea that we need God every day. They have at least that kernel of truth going on. They need God every day. But today, according to statistics and polls and surveys, people think that they are faithful, religious, strong Christians if they attend church on Sunday only, Sunday morning only, twice a month. They think if they attend church twice a month, they are faithful Christians, they're obeying the Bible, only twice a month on Sunday morning, period. They think they're faithful. But he's saying no. Not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some. Some people have the habit of being wishy-washy. They like to waffle here and there. They're double-minded. They're unstable. They waver here and there. That's the way many people are, and this is the habit of them, he says. Some people have this habit, but he says don't have that habit. Don't have that habit because we need to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We need to ask about each other. We need to pray for each other. We need to find out what's going on so we can help one another. This is necessary, and it's even necessary daily. Daily, notice, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. 3, 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says that we ought to do this day after day as long as it is still called today. There is urgency in that. There is frequency in that. There's uh, very uh, frequent repetition in that. Day after day, we have to encourage one another because of the deceitfulness of sin. And he says in any one of you, it could happen. Any one of you, it could happen. You can go along, you can play along, you can do that for a while, but then suddenly something happens. You waver, you fall away, you stop, but no, he says, don't be that way. Jesus our Lord, Luke 4, 16, Jesus our Lord set the pattern and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Jesus' custom was to enter the synagogue on the Sabbath in order to worship God. Jesus' custom was that. And it was not only Jesus' custom, it was the custom of the Apostolic Church. The Apostolic Church, Acts chapter 2. The Apostolic Church in Acts chapter 2. It says the following. 2.46 Acts two forty six, And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. He says there in verse 46, day by day, one mind in the temple, house to house, breaking bread, That means eating their meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God. They had favor with all the people and God was adding to their number day by day. Why was God adding day by day? Because day by day, they kept talking about the things of God. They kept exhorting people and inviting people to come and worship God day by day. Not occasionally, not whenever they felt like it, but day by day. Acts chapter 5. Acts 5 42, Acts 5:42. and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Every day in the temple and house to house, they were preaching Christ. Paul the Apostle, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 verse 2. Acts 172. And according to Paul's custom, He went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. What was his custom? Custom was to enter the Sabbath and to discuss the scriptures, to preach Christ on the Sabbath. So when he says in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our own assembly together, he is talking about doing this constantly, that we must assemble constantly, day by day, and not consider it a burden, and not be wavering, not be uh, waffling here and there, as is the habit of some. Don't be that way. Don't be that way. And have you considered, one author, one Puritan said, in objection to the railroads in Scotland being opened on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. He, among many things he said, one thing he said was, do you not, you claim to be Christians, you all say you're Christians, and you all say you believe the Bible, and you all say you believe the Confession of Faith, which is nationwide Confession of Faith in Scotland, but you are wanting to open the railroad on the Lord's Day. You know, when you do that, you're going to have... Uh, business commercial uh, commercialization going on on the Lord's Day. And you know, when you do that, you're going to have people skip church. You, you say also that they can go from church to church and travel. But no, they're going to skip church. You're going to have people work when they're not supposed to be working. And then, do you not realize, he said, that the, that Sunday or Sunday morning, the Lord's Day is the primary day God has set aside to hear the word of Christ, to hear the gospel of Christ, and you are going to take away that very important day when souls could be saved. How will the souls be saved if the most important day is undermined? If the most important time of the week is undermined, And you make people not hear the Bible, not hear the gospel on that day because they're in the restaurants or they're in the railroad or they're doing this or that. You make them not hear the gospel. Don't you care about the souls of men? And he was right. And that's what he's even saying here in Hebrews. Not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some. Then what should we do? Encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We ought to be encouraging one another, and all the more because the day, the day of judgment awaits. The day of Christ's return awaits. We cannot be like those who are getting drunk. We should not be like those who are in the, in the nighttime practicing sensuality and have no concern about what may happen. We cannot be like those who who are overcome by the thief in the night. We need to be prepared. We need to be the householder who is prepared, who knows, who understands that he must protect his house. His house must be protected. He must not let the thief come and take his possessions. But we are not like those of darkness, the sons of darkness, that the day should overtake us like a thief in the night, the Apostle Paul says. We should not be like that. We ought to be ready. We ought to be diligent. We ought to be alert. Alert all the time, thinking about the things of God, doing the things of God, helping others to follow God and the path of God. They need salvation. The day of judgment is awaiting us. And either we have a premature death now, not knowing how long we live. No one is guaranteed to live 70, 80 years. Nobody is guaranteed that. We might have a premature death now and face God. Or Christ may return and then it's too late. So what will we do? Are we prepared for that day? And let's not only prepare ourselves, but prepare others. Is that not true love? As he said, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Is that not love? To help someone understand the gospel and be saved from his sins so he's not eternally punished? Is that not true love? And if we understand that, we will bask in that, we will understand the gospel even more, have greater insight, greater conviction, be able to destroy speculations and everything that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. We will be able to do that whenever we talk to people about the gospel. Understand the gospel and prepare for the day of Christ. This is the new and living way. Because of what Jesus has done for us and who he is, let's draw near, let's hold fast, let's consider these things and be faithful to him who is faithful to us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Heavenly Father, these words are your words. We thank you that you've made your words so plain to us. There is no way to misunderstand these things. We ask you now, Lord, to grant us the favor we need, all of the powerful uh, work in our life that we need from you to transform us, to conform us, to make us into uh, creatures in Christ that are reflecting Christ. Teach us in our own personal life where we have failed, where we sin, where there is rebellion where there is reluctance to give up sin. Teach us whatever those are and help us to overcome. We want to be close to you. We want to draw near to you. And we want to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, hold fast our faith, and draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Answer our prayers, Lord. You have promised that if we ask anything and it be in accordance with your will, you hear us. We know this, that this is your will to mature. We know, Lord, too, that if we come to you with clean hands and a pure heart, you will hear us. We know, Lord, that if we are living in a godly way, our prayers will not be hindered. We know, Lord, that if we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight, you hear us. We want to be that way, Father. Give us that ability and answer our prayers. In Christ, amen.